Our sermon today will be taken from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 to 7. This is the word of God. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the wound to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the stripes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserve of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord. Well, good morning. It is a delight to be here and to be able to get to know you. Uh, uh, Catherine and I uh, want to say thank you for such a warm welcome you've given to our daughter, Jackie. We've heard many good things about you and uh, the wonderful welcome that you've received, that she's received from you all. Uh, in, in a parallel fashion, as a, one of the pastors at Second Presbyterian Church, we want to say thank you and appreciate all that you have done for Tazar and Tatiana. Uh, I got to know them about five years ago and was very excited about their passion for ministry and their life experience, their story, and the places God was taking them. And as God has already uh, established a community here with them, uh, a team and a, a church family, we're excited to partner with you to see where God is going to take you. So even though we're only here once a year for a few days, uh, we're, we stand with you and are excited to see what God is going to do through you and have been uh, excited to see what God's been doing in Tazar Tatiana's life and Elena's life now um, uh, in the past number of years. So as we now turn to see what God is going to teach us through Isaiah, let's uh, begin with prayer. Father, we need to hear from you today. We all have temptations and tendencies to develop our own plans and to make our own decisions, but we need to hear your word. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you make your word come alive in our hearts? Would you cause faith and trust in you to be born and to be renewed in our hearts as we hear your word? And would you open our minds to what you're speaking to us specifically today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. All right. A little better? Good. Well, because I'm an international missions pastor, I visit our partners throughout the world which means I watch a lot of movies because I'm on these long international flights about every month. Um, <laughs> mission Impossible. All those movies start with the famous line, this mission, should you choose to accept it, and then it goes on to describe what's going to happen. The hero finds himself in some phone booth in some strange place, and he gets the message from his organization about some imminent disaster that's going to destroy the whole world. The whole world is going to be 
destroyed by nuclear holocaust or by some chemical warfare or some terrible thing that's going to happen. And this hero needs to do something. And Tom Cruise and all the movies. It was actually from a TV show that I watched when I was a kid uh, a long time ago. Um, this, the hero has to do something that seems impossible in about three hours to save the whole planet. But it begins with a description of an impossible mission and a choice on the, that, face, that the hero faces. How will I respond to this invitation? This message, should you choose to accept it? Well, today we're going to see the message that God gives to his servant, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 49. The mission, once we get to understand it, will appear to be impossible. It will appear to be something that no man can do. This is an impossible task. It will come at great risk and very low probability of success, but we'll see what the outcome is of that mission. But we'll be invited to consider how will we respond. Now, because the movies are written by Hollywood writers, okay, the hero always says yes. <laughs> It'd be a very short movie if the hero said no, right? I mean, he said, no, nah, I'm not going to accept this one. I'm going to go to the beach, right? Um, well, we actually will face that question. How will we respond to the mission that God gives his servant? Will we respond yes, or will we blow it off and go to the beach? Uh, so we're, we're going to start by looking at the message of the servant of the Lord. Uh, once we get to understand his mission, the mission of the servant of the Lord is actually shocking. We read the Bible, we think, uh, we've read, we're familiar enough with it to where it feels predictable. We think we know the end of the story, but what we're going to read today is actually quite shocking. The passage we read earlier is what's called the servant song or one of the servant of the Lord passages. There are four of these in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, our passage today, 49, 50, and 53. Isaiah lived about 700 years before Christ, and he was a prophet. And among the many parts of his prophecies, basically the biggest, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah are the biggest prophecies prophet, uh, by length in the Old Testament. He gives four prophecies of the servant figure that will come in the future. You're probably familiar with Isaiah 53. That's where the Lord is described as a suffering servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has gone his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on the suffering servant, on the sacrificial lamb, the iniquities of us all. That's from Isaiah 53. That's one of these passages. They're all describing a future to Isaiah servant who will come and suffer greatly to accomplish the mission of God. But what we read in our passage, there's some allusion to the suffering, but it primarily talks about his mission. What is the mission of the servant? Well, let's look uh, through our passage to see a few key things to kind of get the background and understand what the mission of the servant is. You see in 49, in the second half of verse 1, he says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. That's basically prophetic call language, okay? The prophet, the one who's going to speak God's word, the one who's going to accomplish God's mission, God's mission is called by God. No prophet in the Old Testament simply decided, I'm going to go tell the people what to do. I'm going to tell the people how to understand God and what to believe about God. No, the prophets were divinely called. And if you look through the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets, you'll see that they are called by God. They are given a commission. So this is a divine message. So we have to remember, when we hear what the Bible says today, it's God's message. This is not some smart person 
who decided he knew what God's people needed. God called him. And so that's what we hear. The Lord called me from my womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Before the prophet was even thinking things, was making decisions, before he was born, God called him. God, God set him apart for a mission. Okay, so that has significance in how we think about the mission of the prophet because it's God's call and intention from before human thinking ever entered the picture. The phrase servant uh, that's in these, in these passages, in these servant passages, you are my servant, that phrase often describes the prophets as a whole. My servants, the prophets, if you Google it or use your search function or whatever you do, uh, you'll find that phrase quite a few times throughout the Old Testament. And so, again, this is an allusion to this servant figure to be one of the prophets. And that requires us to understand what the role is of a prophet. A prophet would teach people the existing words of God. He would read the scriptures that were given then. I know it's kind of complicated, but if you think about the Old Testament, it wasn't finished when Isaiah prophesied, right? There were still unfinished parts in the future, and Isaiah itself wasn't finished yet, right, when he spoke it, okay? So he's looking to previous scripture. We'll call it the Pentateuch, some of the historical books. That's what he's looking back to. The prophets would teach the people the word of God, call people to obey the word of God, and then he would point out the places where they weren't doing such a good job. He would point out the places where they were in disobedience and call them to obedience in those specific areas where they were in violation. And then he would warn them of the consequences that would come from not obeying the word of God. And he would declare promises of blessing, of restoration, of what would happen in the future when God restored his people. Those were the, uh, that was the function of a prophet. And the prophet, this phrase, my servants, the prophets, actually refers back to Moses because he was the great servant. He's the, like the prophets par excellence. He wrote the Pentateuch. If you think about that for a minute, that's the foundation of all the Bible. I've heard it said the Pentateuch is scripture and everything else is commentary. So the first five books of the Bible written by Moses are the foundation of all revelation. So he's the great prophet. And Moses, at the end of his life, wrote Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch. And he spoke about a prophet like Moses who would come in the future. So he began the prophecy of this future prophet, a prophet who would be like Moses but greater, okay, who we had to listen to. So Isaiah, and this is a beautiful thing about Isaiah that some other time we could talk about, it's a great bridge between the Pentateuch. It always looks back to, looks back to Moses and points forward to this new servant, this new prophet who is to come. You've been in church before, you know the answer to every question from the pulpit. What's the answer? Jesus. <laughs> Isaiah is pointing us forward to Jesus. So he's always a bridge between Moses, the original prophet, and the prophet like Moses to come that Moses himself prophesied about, that this passage is prophesying about. So God will call this prophet from before his birth. And what will the prophet do? Look at, the, uh, look at verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. The servant will declare God's words. The servant will explain the word of God as a prophet. He will explain the word of God not only 
instructionally, but also as a warning. And if you look at Isaiah 6, maybe you've heard Isaiah 6, the call of Isaiah. Whom shall I send, asks the Lord. And the Lord says, and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And I'm a missions pastor, and we use that verse all the time, right? When the Lord is looking for people to go send his message, we say, here I am, send me. Now, the issue is what happens if we read later, the very next verse? What is Isaiah actually going to go preach? It's not so fun. That was Isaiah 6, verse 8. Here's verse 9. This is what the Lord said. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, this is kind of confusing, but to make it simple, this is a judgment prophecy. Isaiah is going to speak to his people, speak to God's people, with the intention that they won't hear and they won't see and believe so that God's judgment will come upon them. This is the passage Jesus cites to explain why he did his teaching, why he taught in parables. He quotes this passage, that they would hear but not hear and see but not see. So all I want to, the point I want to make now is simply that God's prophetic word is not always words of instruction and encouragement, but also warning about righteous judgment that will come. And we'll look at that also a little bit later this morning. So the prophet is called by God, is called to speak God's word, God's words of instruction and encouragement, as well as the warning of God's judgment to come. The servant will declare the restoration that is to come. If you look at verse 5, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. And if you look at uh, part of verse 6, you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. If you know a little bit about Old Testament history, what's about to happen, well, what's happened at the time of Isaiah in the northern kingdom is they were conquered by the Assyrians and sent off into exile from which they won't ever return. And what's about to happen in the southern kingdom is they're going to be conquered by Babylon and sent to live in another city, in the capital of, the, uh, of Babylon. Uh, they're going to be exiled for their sin. And so the servant, what he's going to do is he's going to restore the people. He's going to gather the people. So this is that promise of restoration. The work of the servant will, will be to bring back, to gather the exiles who have been scattered and spread about, and to bring them back and restore them to Israel, to the land from which they came. So the servant will be an agent of restoration. But here's the most surprising part. In a sense, that was all predictable, right? We know prophets are called by God. They teach people the word of God. They rebuke them for their sin. They encourage them to repent. They warn of God's coming judgment. They talk about God's promise. But look who it's for. Look at Isaiah 49, 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Every nation that loses a war, 
every nation that gets oppressed, that falls, and their people somehow either get scattered or become slaves or become second class somehow, every nation longs to be restored, longs to see its kingdom and its empire reestablished, longs to see its people that have been scattered by war to the ends of the earth gathered back together and restored to places of dignity and honor. What Isaiah says is, that's too light a thing for God. That's a good endeavor, an understandable endeavor, an endeavor that every nation in the world wants. But that's not a divine thing. God says, I will make you, I will make my servant a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, it's interesting if you look back. Chapter 49, verse 1, the first half. This is a call. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. And I don't want to say this is a trick, but I don't know another word to use. <laughs> you see, in prophetic language, often there's like a court case. And the prophet calls upon witnesses, heavens and earth, okay? And these are eternal witnesses that live longer than any people. And they will be witnesses to what the prophet is about to say. It sounds like that's what he's doing here. Listen, O coastlands, land far away. Give attention to you peoples from afar. It sounds like these are going to be witnesses to what the prophet is saying. But actually, those are the recipients of the message. Because when we get to verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations, and my, my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. These are the people who are going to be restored. Another way to put it is that the servant will not come merely to restore the children of Abraham, but he will come to restore the children of Adam. He will come not only to fix the issues of one particular nation who he set his affection upon, but he will come to undo the effects of the Tower of Babel where all nations were separated and spread and dispersed to the ends of the earth. He'll restore them too. I imagine, imagine this picture. We uh, just had a vacation. We came on the way here from the United States and we stopped in New Zealand. And New Zealand in the north has famous black beaches where the sand is black. So imagine I came here to a beautiful white beach somewhere in Indonesia. I don't know where it is, but imagine a beautiful white beach that goes for several kilometers that way and several kilometers that way. And I've got my jar of black sand from New Zealand that I'm very proud of because it's this unusual black sand. And I'm walking on this beautiful white beach, looking at the beautiful waters, and I trip. And I spill the black sand on the beach in front of me. Oh, no, what am I going to do with my black sand? I've got to gather it up. This bucket of this jar of black sand has now been spilled. You can imagine collecting wet sand and separating grains of black and white and how to gather up those black sand. And I'm in the middle of that project trying to figure out how to gather it up. And God says, oh, no, 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 no. Your task isn't to gather up the black grains. It's to gather all the sand on the beach that goes on for kilometers this way and kilometers that way. And I don't know how far it goes out into the water. You see, we tend to think of the human task. Can I restore mine? my people, my group, whoever it is who we define me and mine. And the Lord says, no, 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 that's too light a thing. I know that's what people do. I'm going to restore the whole beach. <laughs> I'm going to restore all the children of Adam and all the nations that are dispersed and all the, you think, you have a sin problem? Let me tell you about the problem of all those nations. 
the servant is, has come to restore all the children of Adam. So that's the scope of the work of the servant. That's why we feel like it's mission impossible. Because we think he's going to say, oh, let's, let's gather back Israel. Let's gather back the children of Abraham. And God says, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> it's not the little bucket. It's the whole deal. It's the whole game. That's who I'm gathering back. That's the work of my servant. So before we go on, I want us to ask ourselves the question. Do you worship Jesus as a king? Or do you worship Jesus as the king of kings? Okay? We all acknowledge Jesus as king. That's actually a theme in Isaiah. The Lord is king. That's why he's on a throne in, in the call of Isaiah. You see him on a throne. That's because he's a royal figure. And in the book of Isaiah, one theme throughout the book is the Lord is king. So we would all acknowledge that. But throughout the book of Isaiah, you see that he's the king over all nations. And in a certain part of Isaiah, 13 to 23, you see how all the different nations serve the Lord and how they're all accountable to him and all will be restored by him. That's what we see this work of the servant is. Most people, I can just speak for my city and my country where I come from, we tend to have an ethnocentric point of view. America tends to think about America. Memphis tends to think about Memphis. We tend to think God has come as Christians to save me and my city and my people. That would be worshiping Jesus as king. But you know from Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, he has written on his thigh, king of kings, Lord of lords. That means every king. If you go to Isaiah, that's Ahaz, that's Ashurbanipal, that's the kings of Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, the kings of Judah, the kings of Ephraim. Every king serves Yahweh. Not just one, not just Israel. What, how do we view God? Do we view God simply as the God of me and mine? And that can be your nation, Indonesia. That could be your nationality. It can be your social economic class. It can be your neighborhood. It can be your city. We all do it somehow. Again, I just know what we did in Memphis, how we tend to think of the God of my people. Or do we recognize that Jesus is the king of kings? And his work, the work of his servant, the work of Jesus is to restore every nationality. And every nationality bows and serves before God. We see that in Isaiah 49, verse 7. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. Kings and princes of other peoples of other nations will come and bow before the Lord because he is king of kings. Let's think about how we think about God. He's not just our God. He's the God of all nations who is at work restoring all nations. I want to give you one picture. I do get the privilege to travel and see some things. And I want to tell you one amazing thing I've seen. I visited Dubai. We have a partner in Dubai who is an elder at the Redeemer Church of Dubai. Now, if you know much about the United Arab Emirates or Dubai, maybe some of you have worked there or visited there, um, only about 9% of the people in Dubai are from the UAE, from the Emirates. Uh, the other 91% are from all kinds of other nations. And they're very much stratified by class. There's the business owners, the professionals who run those businesses, the managers who run 
that work for the professionals, then there's the, the builders, and then there's the people who take care of their families, and then there's, a, there's all kinds of different people, and they tend to be stratified by nation. Different nations get different tasks. And so the culture in Dubai is very stratified. But when I went to Redeemer Church of Dubai, by the way, for those of you who were here yesterday, their church service meets on Friday because it's a Muslim country, so their weekend is Friday, Saturday. You can think about that contextualization. We can have a nice little discussion about that later. When I went to Redeemer Church in Dubai about three years ago, there were 400 people in attendance. They represented 50 different nations. But they all gathered together in one common room, worshiping one God in one common language. It was the professional language of English. That's why I could understand it. Even though they all spoke other languages, but in Dubai, the professional language that they all operated in is English. So 50 different nationalities gathered together worshiping one God. Why? Because Jesus is king of kings. He's the king over all those nations. And he has a uniting factor in which we will all together have in common that we worship Jesus. That will be even greater than our very particularized individual languages and cultural traditions and all those things. Jesus is the king of kings, and it was fun to see that. And if you feel so inclined, I will tell you that Redeemer Church of Dubai is planting a daughter church that will open in two weeks in the city of Dubai because they've now grown to 1,000, and they're out, they've outgrown their capacity in a Muslim country to worship God in their facility. So uh, our friend is going to start a new church. Opening service is the first Sunday in April. Feel free to pray for, pray for them as you feel led. So the work of the servant Jesus is to call back people, to restore, to bring his message of restoration to people from every nation. It's surprising. It's not what the world does, but it's what Jesus does as king. And he calls us uh, to be part of that, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but as we look at his mission, the mission of the servant, on the one hand, it seems like the enormity of the task could frustrate that mission. How do you gather all the grains of sand on the whole beach? How do you gather that back? <laughs> but there's a bigger problem that's actually alluded to here. It's kind of subtle. But once we unpack it, you recognize it's the main theme of the whole Old Testament. The bigger threat to the mission of the servant is the sin of God's people. So look at verse 4, for example, of Isaiah 49. But I said, this is the prophet speaking, the prophet meaning the future prophet, so in a sense he's representing Jesus' speak, speech. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. And then he's conflicted, right? So he feels like all his ministry has been for nothing. All his efforts at preaching, at teaching, at calling people to repent was for nothing. But then he says, but surely the right, my right is with the Lord and my recompense with God. Surely God is protecting me. We saw that language in verse 2 about the arrow and the sword being covered in his hand and in his quiver. Um, so surely the Lord was protecting me. He was with me. He was leading me. So he has this tension. He feels like his message has been in vain. It has been resisted. This is obviously a motif throughout the whole Bible. If you look just at Isaiah, maybe you remember in Isaiah 7, Isaiah is preaching within his historical context. Isaiah here is preaching to a future context. But in his own life, in the 7th century B.C., he is dealing with King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is being threatened by two armies to the north. They're threatening to attack him. Isaiah calls him to trust the Lord, 
to ask the Lord for a sign, to believe that the Lord will be his shield and his defender, and to trust that he is a son of David, that he will be protected as the Lord promises. And Ahaz says, no, I won't ask for a sign. And we know from kings and other parts of the scripture, what he did was he chose to trust in another king who he could see, the king of Assyria. He chose, chose to make a treaty with the king of Assyria to trust a visible, powerful, earthly kingdom instead of trusting an invisible, heavenly kingdom. He chose to try to save himself and his people his own way with his own human strategy and his own human thinking and chose not to trust the Lord. Isaiah was explicit about what God had called him to do. He says, no, I want to do it my way. He resisted the word of God. He resisted the prophetic call to trust the Lord. Now, this is nothing new. You go back to the great prophet, the founding prophet Moses, right? When he said, I've called to come to lead you out of Egypt, but who made you a prophet over us? They resisted the word of God through his, the prophet. When he led them out into the wilderness, you remember what happened? You just brought us out here to kill us. The people of God have this terrible habit of resisting the word of God given through the prophets. This is nothing new. We point future to Jesus. What happened when Jesus came? He came to his own, says John, and his own did not receive him. The story just touching every time I think about it. He went to a synagogue, and there was a woman whose hand was all curled up. She hadn't been able to use it for years. And he says, stretch out your hand, and this woman, her hand is made whole. It's not only her physical healing, but her social healing. She's now restored to a place of honor and dignity. She's now been touched by the Lord. The Lord loved her, showed his compassion for her, and healed her. And what did the people say? You broke the rules. You're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. <coughs> not exactly a biblical command, but that's the way they took it. You broke our rules. They saw the Lord's action and compassion at work in front of them, and they resisted it. They rejected it. So we see this theme that the people of God resist God's voice. Furthermore, the people of God historically are committed to defending their own idolatry and their own compromise. That's what Isaiah was warning them about, that they wouldn't hear. And that would lead to judgment. The people would be judged. So Isaiah lived, I mean, he lived for a long time, but he lived, let's say, 700 B.C., He's talking about problems that the people of God have had for over 300 years. You've compromised your worship. You worship Yahweh sometimes at festivals, but you worship other gods, Baals, and other gods in, in the surrounding nations. You compromise ethically. You compromise spiritually. And if you don't repent, God will judge you. He'll send you into exile. Well, think about the language about uh, restoration. He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. Why did you have to bring Jacob back? Why did you have to gather Israel? They weren't scattered because a clumsy person tripped on the beach and spilled the sand. <laughs> they were scattered because God raised up enemy nations to bring judgment upon them. It wasn't that they happened to be in a difficult place in the Middle East and some other countries got power and strength and attacked them. No, the Lord sent those nations to judge them because of their sin. Back to Moses. 
Why were they in the wilderness for 40 years? Was it because Moses didn't want to ask for directions? He got lost in the wilderness. Where do we go? I don't know where to go. <laughs> no. It was because they rebelled against God. God called them to trust him, that he would give them victory over the Anakites, the giants in the land. They said, no, we don't want to trust the Lord. So they were judged for 40 years in the wilderness. Forward to Jesus. Why was Jerusalem surrounded by armies from Rome? And why was the temple destroyed in 70 AD? It wasn't just because Rome had a big army. God was judging them for rejecting the message and the messenger. God was judging them for not hearing the voice of the prophet. So you see, God warns us against our sin. We resist. The people of God resist. They cling to their idols. They cling to their compromise. And so God brings judgment upon them. And that would seem to frustrate the mission of the servant of God. That would frustrate his ability to, to save people because his own people have rejected him. But that frustration was only temporary because Jesus did come and accomplish his mission. When Jesus was born, you might remember, his parents came to present him at the temple. And Simeon came and said a word of prophecy over Jesus. He says, my eyes, I can rejoice and your servant can depart in peace because I've seen your salvation, who is a light of revelation for the Gentiles and glory to God's people Israel. He's citing Isaiah 49.6. This prophecy came true in Jesus because Jesus came to restore God's people, to regather them, to reestablish them as a people of God. But if you look at Luke-Acts, two volumes of one series. Acts is a sequel, if you want to look at it that way, written by one person. In Luke, we see the gospel established that basically is primarily among Jews. But you notice there's a lot of other people in Luke that get saved. But then in Acts, as it unfolds, it's a light of revelation to the Gentiles, is in Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth among all kinds of non-Jewish people, the gospel goes forth. So Luke and Acts is the fulfillment of Isaiah 49.6. So we see the gospel will accomplish its mission despite opposition from enemies and despite the sin of God's people. So before we go on to our third point, I want to stop for a moment and at least ask, us a, ask ourselves a question. Where are we as God's people, typical of God's people, resisting the word of God? See, we love to hear these stories of someone else's sin and someone else's judgment as if it weren't us. But we are the people of God. Where are we resisting the word of God? Where do we insist on trusting what we can see and the kingdoms that we can touch and feel and see instead of trusting the Lord who we can't see and the kingdom who we don't see? Where do we insist on doing it our way? King Ahaz, he had a plan. He just wanted to do it his way. And when God came and told him a different way to do it, that was a little more risky, he said, no, 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 I want to do it my way. My spiritual life, my personal life, my life mission, I want to do it my way. I don't want to trust the God I can't see. I think of rappelling. Many of you ever done rappelling? It's rope climbing when you go down backwards, not climbing up, but going down. Anybody ever done rappelling? Okay, well, let me tell you a little bit about rappelling for those of you who haven't done it. Uh, first of all, it's terrifying. <laughs> you get on the top of a building or top of a cliff, and you're going to go down backwards. 
You got the rope on around your, your waist. You got a harness around your waist and a rope that goes through through a little figure eight that will slow, it, slow you down. And you have a safety rope. There's a guy on top who's done this before. I'm no expert climber, but I've done this three or four times. And here's the deal. You've probably seen it in the movies, right? Here's the cliff, and here's the guy walking down, right? He's walking down perpendicular to the cliff, okay? He's not up and down. He's perpendicular. Well, when you stand at the top, uh, you're not, you don't start perpendicular. You're standing up at the top, and behind you is, let's call it, a 50-meter drop, okay? I don't know about you, but I don't like to stand next to a 50-meter drop. Makes me very nervous, okay? But here's the deal. For the rappelling to work, you have to lean over backwards. You have to go from vertical to 90 degrees, okay? If you have any sense of self-preservation, you lean back about two degrees, you go, no, I don't want to go any farther, right? <laughs> and once you've leaned back a little bit, you can see down there. It's like, whoa, those people are really small. <laughs> I don't want to go down there, are you kidding? And the guide says, no, you need to lean back. And I lean back one more degree, that's it, that's max. Three degrees, that's as far as I'm going. He says, no, 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 you lean back way further. And if you've done it before, you know that is the trick. You have to lean all the way back to 90 degrees, which to you feels like 180. Okay, when you get back to 90 degrees, you think your head is going down, okay? Because we have this self-preservation instinct. So what people do is say, no, 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 I'm going to do it my way. I'm leaning back as far as I'm going, three degrees. And they try to walk down the cliff. Now, you know what happens if the rope is right by the cliff? You bang your face against the cliff every two seconds, all the way down. Bang, 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 bang. You bang your head. You're, and the rappelling doesn't work properly because the rope gets tangled up in front. And the poor guide on top with the safety rope is just lowering you down one foot at a time as you hit your head all 50 meters. <laughs> okay? And if you watch this, now you'll see who's the new guy who's not listening to the instructor. Okay? And who's the guy with some faith? Okay, it took me about the fourth time before I had any faith, you know, because um, the guy with faith leans all the way back. It's counterintuitive. It feels like you're going to die. But once you get to 90 degrees, you know what? It's a blast. You look like those guys in the movies who just bing, they just jump off, the, you go back and forth, and you drop yourself a meter or two, and then you, your feet hit again, and it's easy as anything. And it's, it is great fun once you believe that the rope is actually going to hold you up, which is hard, <laughs> Okay. We spend most of our life arguing with the guide. I know how to get down. I want to be up and down. I, I want to go down this way. And the guy's going, no, no, no. I know everybody does it that way, and you're going to smash your face. I know. <laughs> and he said, no, no, not me. I'm the exception. I can use my own strategy, my own instincts, my own feelings, my own thoughts, and I know better than you, the guide. How often do we resist God in that way? Say, no, God, I'm not going to trust you and lean all the way back. So only you are holding me up. Only your word, only your promise, only your instruction. If you do that, you just skip down the wall and it's way better, no matter what happens. But how many of us are like those first-timers who want to do it our own way and we fight all the way down, we get down to the bottom, we're bruised, we're battered, we say, oh, I did it. You know, our hands can barely, because we tried to hold the rope, which doesn't work that way. Okay. Let's first ask where and how we're clinging to idols where and how we're clinging to our own way. God is warning us, disaster will befall you if you keep on clinging to those idols, if you keep on insisting and doing it your own way. I've told you how to live life. I've got a mission and a plan for you. Just trust me. I know it's counterintuitive, but believe me, it's way better. Ask ourselves where we resist and ask God to give you faith to trust the guide to lean back and descend. So the Lord will overcome our own sin overcome the obstacles. But here's, in a sense, the most surprising thing of all. 
the mission of the servant of the Lord will be accomplished through you. We've talked about Jesus. We all know that's the right answer to that question in church. Who does this? Jesus. Yes, you got the right answer. But the message, excuse me, the mission of the servant actually is ultimately accomplished through the people of God. Let me walk us through this for a little bit. There's this interesting interplay in these four passages that talk about the servant of the Lord between is it one person or is it a group of people? If you notice, I did intentionally skip this part. In Isaiah 49.3, he says, He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, he's not talking about Israel Jacob from Genesis. He's talking about a people. He's talking about a group of people, the people of God collectively. They are the servant of God. But if you read the other servant passages, it sure feels like it's an individual. Okay? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each gone on way. The Lord has laid on him, on that individual, on Jesus who came and died for us individually. He alone died for our sins. So basically what we see is there's both a collective and an individual understanding of these passages. They speak prophetically of Jesus who represents the whole people of God. Jesus is true Israel, a whole other topic. We won't go there today. But Jesus represents all of us. He's our representative. So he accomplishes the mission of the servant. But if you look at Acts, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. And when they begin preaching to other nations, they cite Isaiah 49.6 as if it's fulfilled in them. So there's a sense in which Jesus fulfills the mission, but there's a sense in which you, starting with Paul and Barnabas, representing the new people of God established by Jesus' resurrection, you are the servant of the Lord. So again, it's kind of a complicated argument, but the point is that the mission of the servant of God, Jesus, is now handed off to his people who are in Christ. So when you chose to follow Jesus... When you responded to his call and said, yes, I believe, you became in Christ. You became part of the people of God. You became a Jesus person. So you not only were joined into the body of Christ, your identity was not only joined to being in Christ, you also were commissioned with Jesus' mission. So the mission of the servant of the Lord to bring restoration to all the nations of the earth is now given to the people of God. Now, we can't replace Jesus. Only Jesus can die for sins. Only Jesus was raised from the dead uniquely as a sign of the victory of God. But how does the message of the gospel, that Jesus accomplished our salvation, how does it go to the ends of the earth? Uh, I think we sung it earlier. And leaving your spirit till the work on earth is done. Right? The Spirit of God dwells in us collectively. And the Spirit of God is the one who through us announces God's salvation to the other nations, to the other people in the world, and draws faith from them. So they would respond as well. So we become the instruments. We become the means by which God blesses all the nations and God brings all the sand on the beach back to himself. So the mission of the servant the Lord has been given to the people of God. That's our mission should we choose to accept it. I want to tell another story about a friend of mine. 
His name is Iotis Kantartsis. He's the pastor of the First Evangelical Church of Athens, Greece. It's a very traditional old church, oldest Protestant church in Athens, uh, about 170 years old. And he had a vision to serve and love his city. But if you know anything about the last 10 years economically and socially, politically, in the European Union, Greece has been in the center of a lot of complexity, a lot of nuanced arguments. Should they even be in the EU? Is their currency worth anything? All that business. Well, in 2008, there were riots economic, over economics. There were people in the city who felt like was, they were being unjustly treated by the austerity measures. And there were riots in which people were killed uh, in the city of Athens. This pastor, his church, his traditional church representing authority, happens to be on one of the major thoroughfares through the city where the protesters march just down the, down the street from the parliament. And so as this mob of protesters, angry, violent, crying destruction, injustice, pass by his church, they decide his church is a symbol of authority and start throwing rocks through the windows. Old traditional church, huge, beautiful windows. In Greece, the rocks, they're all marble. So they're not little bitty rocks like on the road. They're big marble rocks, chunking them through the windows. The pastor gets a phone call from somebody in his church, a lady in his church saying, Pastor, Pastor, they're destroying our church. So he runs there, and he comes and finds his sanctuary with all the beautiful windows destroyed and uh, quite a few stones and marble rocks uh, in the sanctuary on the pews and on the floor. He goes and he picks up the rock. He looks at it, and he asks the question, is this a threat or is it an invitation? And what he meant by that was, is our church meant to be a fortress in which we come and hide and protect ourselves from the problems of the city over there? Or is this an invitation, granted complicated in form? <laughs> it's a rock that did damage our building. But is this an invitation from a troubled city, from people who feel injustice and feel confusion and don't know what to do and express it incorrectly? But is this stone through our window an invitation to move into our city, to move closer to our city, and to love these troubled people of our city, saying, it's not them, it's us. It's not us in the church and them in the city. It's us in Athens. And how can we love them? He decided it was an invitation. And he and some of his leaders in his church developed a church planting strategy. And two years later, they started a new church in Exarchia, which is the anarchist capital of that portion of Europe. The police aren't even allowed to go into those neighborhoods. Yeah, think about that. They moved young families into those neighborhoods to live among the anarchists. And they have a church plant, a young church plant now, six, five or six years old, in Exarchia among the anarchists. Because they said, their problems are our problems. Their confusion, their misunderstanding is ours. And we want to be part of helping that grain of sand get recollected and regathered. They planted a few other churches. And it's possible that you noticed that there's a refugee crisis in Syria, which affects Athens, because they have so, the country is so poor they can't defend all their borders, and they have hundreds of thousands of refugees, undocumented, coming across their borders. Who was addressing the humanitarian needs of those refugees? The churches that got planted. They were caring for the needs of refugees who were very other. Okay, a traditional Syrian and a traditional Greek aren't very similar, okay? But these churches were saying, I want to help this grain of sand experience the love of God so they might come back into the fold. 
and they've seen churches established among Iranians, among Afghans, among Albanians, among a number of people, peoples who are traditionally hostile to the gospel because they decided that the mission of the servant of the Lord was their mission. The mission to bring restoration, renewal, true faith wasn't just for their people, the traditional Greek people. It was for the other nations as well who surrounded them, just like it was for the other nations that surrounded Israel in their day. So we've heard the mission to take part in bringing restoration, meaning reconciliation with God, with broken, sinful humanity, not only to people who are like us, but to all the peoples of the earth. That's the mission of Jesus, which he accomplished by coming living without sin, and dying on the cross is our substitute. But that's the mission that he's given to his people. He's given us that commission. It seems impossible because the world we live in oppresses us and because of the sin we're aware of is in our own heart and in our own communities. But Jesus accomplished his mission and he gave it to us. The only question for us is how will we respond? Will we be like Tom Cruise? Say, yes, here I am, and I'm going to go accomplish that mission. I hope you will. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the mission of Jesus, that when he saw our rebellion, our sin, our disinterest, our pursuit of other gods, did not say, ah, these people are hopeless. You saw our hearts and chose to come love us until we would respond. You chose to love us and die for us. And now you've given us the mission to do that for others, however radically different they might be than us, religion, uh, ethnic group, race, uh, social status. Would you give us your eyes, your heart, that we might love them and be instruments of proclaiming reconciliation to them, that all the grains of the earth, all the different peoples and ethnicities and languages might be reestablished as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.